morning. Father, we thank you uh, for this precious gift that you've given us, um, that you've given me. Lord, thank you for that, by the way. I'm definitely <laughs> blessed. Um, Lord, I, I pray, God, not necessarily for her, but I pray for us. Lord, I, I pray that our hearts would be uh, sensitive and, and, and able to be open and receive that which of which you have for us this morning in the scriptures. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I'm just, oh, actually, I'm going to give you this in case our son texts. Our son is at a NASCAR race today. Don't ask. <laughs> but just in case he needs one of us. Um, so um, in addition to that, I actually, wanna, I actually wanted to comment. He was thanking the Lord for me. Thank you, Henny. Um, I was actually thinking while we were leading worship, for those of you that don't know my husband, um, he definitely could sing the song that, what were the lyrics to that song? Yeah, he definitely could sing it and he knew the words, um, but he was tearing up and couldn't sing because he, and I, I literally, aside from everything else, was just praying, just keep, help him get through the song, Lord. <laughs> like, you can have a moment later, honey, you got to move. <laughs> um, but I, I want to I say to you is he definitely wasn't struggling to sing it. He was struggling because his heart is moved by the mercy of God. And I just want to say, we're blessed to have a pastor that above everything else, he is moved by the power of the cross and he lives daily in awe of how God's transformed his life. And so you can have all the theological training in the world and your heart not moved by the beauty of Jesus Christ and stand in awe of him. And so it's a beautiful posture that you have, honey, and thank you for leading us in worship this morning. So I'm going to do something a little different this morning. Um, <laughs> Michelle goes, uh-oh. Um, don't be alarmed. Um, basically, what I'm going to do is before we get to the text that I'm going to be teaching out of, I'm actually going to give you a very brief, and when I say brief, I'm going to give you a brief history of um, the founding of our community and ultimately our call to be a missional community. So I'm going to give you a little context. And I'm looking around this morning. There's some of you here that have heard this, and you've actually heard it in a two-part, like two, it takes me two weeks to actually get through it. It's pretty, like, long and detailed and orchestrated and all of that. Um, but there's a good, I'm looking around, there's a good number of you that have never heard any of this. And so I'm sorry to say you're really, literally going to get the fast forward version. You're just going to get like the main four highlights because it's actually not my topic today. It's my intro. <laughs> um, so don't be afraid. <laughs> um, for those of you that are like, wow, she's starting on like prophetic history. Like this could take a couple weeks. It won't. I'm actually just going to highlight a few details. Um, it's important that we do this because Daryl and um, Kaylin over the past few weeks have been talking about love your neighbor. And ultimately, they've been talking about what it is to be a missional people, right? Living in light of the great commission of loving our neighbor and preaching the gospel and all of those things. And I think what a lot of us here don't understand is that the very founding of our church really comes down to the great commission. And so I'm going to give us a brief history, and then we're going to move into three passages of scripture. Um, but first and foremost, um, when I was 16 years old, I read a book. I highly recommend it. You should jot it down. You should order the book. It's called The Light and the Glory by David Manuel and Peter Marshall. You should read it. Basically, when I was 16 years old, I know this, some of this, you are going to be like, oh, when she was 16, why was some of this happening when she was 16? I radically encountered the Lord when I was in ninth grade. So when I say radically encountered the Lord, like I encountered him and never looked back. Like the beauty of Jesus consumed my life. Sin was no longer appealing, not saying I didn't have momentary struggles, but my heart was ruined for something much greater. 
So in this, uh, I was 16 years old, reading The Light and the Glory, and as I was reading it, it was the first time I was reading some of the U.S. history, and how many of you guys know the name John Winthrop? He was the first governor of this city, and when he was the first governor, when he was aboard the Arabella, he wrote a document called A Model for Christian Charity. If you haven't read it, you should read A Model for Christian Charity. So I was 16 years old reading this, and what I was realizing is this man aboard the Arabella, God put a dream in his heart. God birthed a dream in this man of what New England would be. And when he birthed this dream, he set out basically what a God-fearing community would look like, what a God-fearing society. Now, hear me this morning. I understand that we have not lived up to that fully. I understand we have very dark and treacherous things in our past. I will never, never deny that America has some, some dark things in its history. But I'm going to tell you something. There's also righteous roots. There's also, you can look through history of covenants that man made with God. And although he may not have done them perfectly, and have may have not executed them perfectly, there's something of God activity that you have to look that he put in the heart of man of saying, this is my intended purpose. So in the midst of whatever's going on in society, you have to ask yourself, what is God's intended purpose? purpose. What has God intended to bring forth? So you should read a model for Christian charity. It's there where I basically, not only did he make a covenant with God, he, he quoted Matthew chapter 514. And he said, for we shall be a city set upon a hilltop and a light to all peoples. He was declaring, we are not coming to the new world just simply for our own freedom. We are coming to the new world that we could be a beacon of light and a beacon of hope and that the gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth. He had the great commission in mind that it would be a missional sending place that New England would be. He went so far to say that we are to walk humbly before our God, walk justly and to honor him first. And he went so far to say, if we carry this out, that other plantations from this time will say, make it like that of New England. There'll be such a mark of the favor and the hand and the glory of God that rests upon us. But he also said, if we deal falsely with our God, we will become a byword amongst the nations. It's an intense covenant and you can read it. But it was when I was 16 years old that I began to say, God had a dream in his heart. And we're not fulfilling that dream. I can remember in high school them asking me, what do you want to do? What do you want to become? What do you want to go to school for? I'm like, I just want to see God's dream come to pass. I want to see his dream for New England to come to pass. It was also my high school years, I began to study revival history. How many of you guys know we're living in the land of the first and the second great awakening? If you don't know that, you should look it up and begin to read and get your heart envisioned with some faith. But it was as I was reading about the first and the second great awakening that I discovered a man named Jonathan Edwards. Anybody know, have heard the name Jonathan Edwards? Look him up, study him, read some of his sermons. They'll change your life. But it was in the midst of that I found a specific document that he wrote, and it's called A Humble Attempt. It's funny. It's called A Humble Attempt, and it's a grandiose vision. That's what it is. It's, it's like a remarkable vision. And ultimately, what he details is that he sees that out of New England, there will be an extraordinary move of prayer that will bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. This is what Jonathan Edwards saw. 
Now, can I tell you, these men like John Winthrop, who's penning these things aboard the Arabella, and, and Jonathan Edwards, they had no way of knowing that generations later, this very soil would become a place where the nations of the earth actually gather, where they actually come, where it's not so much a far-off vision, but the nations of the earth are here. And I, 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 I hate to say it tritely or almost without humility, but easily... The nations of the earth can be touched from here and the gospel can be preached effectively to the, na- to the nations from Cambridge and Boston. So these were the things when I was young that were stirring in my heart and I, I, I had many opportunities to move to different places and be a part of different works and I would always say, I have a vision for New England. I know what God wants to do in New England and he once again wants to make it a, a land of missionary sending. So these were like my... Formative high school years. I will save you all of the details, but I grew up in a town, and the next town over, there was an abandoned college campus. I began to look into the roots of the college campus and the history of the college campus. In short, it's where the first missionaries were sent. Anne and Iron Judson and Anne Hazeltine were sent and commissioned. The first board of uh, foreign mission, the first board of commissioners for foreign missions was established there. It was the fruit of the Haystack Revival in Williams College. I told you, I'm giving you a very abbreviated version. (laughs) But ultimately, the first missionaries were sent overseas. And what you find is not only is this a land in our history of revival and awakening, it's our, our history is missionary sending. Even to this day, if you look at the numbers of missionaries that have been sent worldwide, New England has a vast majority of that population coming out of this region because of the student volunteer missions movements we've seen in the past. So in the midst of me finding out this well of foreign missions, probably 2000, and it was like from 2002 to 2007, praying over this abandoned college campus, it was in the midst of that, I was in Pasadena, California, Many of you guys know Lou Engel. He's, he's a friend, a father, and a founder to our ministry. I was out there with him, and he was actually talking to us about moving there to do a house of prayer with him. And I kept saying, I can't move. I'm praying over this abandoned college campus, <laughs> praying for a student volunteer missions movement. I'm, you know, 24, 25 years old, however I was at the time. I'm like, this is what I'm giving my life to. What, is, what does that look like? I mean, what is, it's like such a vague, like... I go to step on to, it's called um, Mott Auditorium, where there was revival meetings that night. I had never heard of the man named John R. Mott. Anybody ever heard of John R. Mott? I'm not saying John R. Mott. <laughs> if you've heard of the Toronto Airport Vineyard Revival, John R. Mott. So I step onto this, co- this auditorium, and literally, when I say it was probably, I mean, those of you that have seen the picture of it, Michelle has seen it. She's put it on PowerPoint many times. <laughs> there was, bigger than this, there was just a painting of a man's face. That was all that I saw. Was, and actually, I didn't see it at the time, but behind it is almost like, behind his face is like a picture of a world map. So when I stepped onto the campus and saw, the, I saw his face, I just immediately went into travail. I don't know how you want to categorize that, what your experience is with that, but it's real and it happened to me and it was not pretty. Weeping and crying uncontrollably. Um, so we happen to have a photo of it. I don't have it here today, but... Um, Lou's wife had a little disposable camera and she snapped a shot and so we still have a copy of it. And the reason they snapped a shot is Lou kept saying, this is a window into your destiny. This is a window into your destiny. And I kept thinking, what is going on? So I still didn't know who John Armott was. He kept saying to me, you know who he is? I'm like, I have no idea what's happening. I came back home from that trip and I was reading a history book 
about the college campus that had been abandoned and was vacant for 10 years and we'd been praying over it that was the well for foreign missions in the United States. In the history book, all of a sudden, off the page jumps John R. Mott. I'm like, what does he have to do with New England? And what does he have to do with this college campus or the student volunteer missions movement? I begin to read further, and what I find out is the very campus that we'd been praying over for all of these years for God to restore the well of foreign missions. In 1910, he came there because the first missionaries were sent in 1810. Arnine Judson, Hans, Anne Hazeltine, this is when the first missionaries were sent over. A hundred years later, he comes to that very spot to honor the history of what God, God brought out from that place and to call for another student volunteer missions movement. And what he ultimately said in Bradford, Massachusetts, is he said that first band of missionaries, they had dreams. Dreams that were not realized in our generation. But it's the call upon our, our generation to pick up those dreams and to see them fulfilled in ours. I share this with you this morning because for me, this is like a, I don't know, like a 20-year history of God speaking to me and I actually don't have time, it would astound you, of not only God speaking a word to me or giving me a dream about what would happen with the campus and then it happens, or asking the Lord for confirmation. Here's one. I, I was going to sew a book into a friend of mine about John Armand, and I actually wanted it myself. It's called The Evangelization. This is the book that he wrote. It's called The Evangelization of the World in This Generation. That's what John Armand wrote. And I wanted a copy, but I didn't have enough for one for me and one for my friend. So I decided to sew one into my friend. And the day that I ordered it to send it to my friend, I said to the Lord, I said, you've given me so many words about John Armott and the Student Volunteer Missions Movement. If, if this word is true and you intend to fulfill it, would you provide a book for me? I want a book too. I went to the post office box that day, that very day, and had a box in the post office. I opened up the box and it's a, it, it was a book that Lou and Trez Engel sent me. And it was actually the history of the Student Volunteer Missions Convention that John Armott led. And inside was a very personal note about the wells of revival and John Armott's Student Volunteer Missions movement and that God was going to fulfill all of the words that he spoke to us. In addition to that, before, it was actually the campuses now, which God spoke to us and said it would be preserved, it would be given to a Christian college so that it could be preserved for the fullness of its purposes. It is now owned by a Christian college. I was in Redding, California, and it was while, while that college was still vacant, and I was kind of just sitting on all of these words. It was before I ever knew I'd be working in, in Boston and with college campuses. I was in Redding, California, and this prophet came walking right up to me, eyes wide open, like nothing like, thus saith the Lord, trying to find me and like try to get a word somewhere. <laughs> like, he looked right up at me with eyes wide open, and he, he looked at me and he said, have you ever heard of a place called Bradford College? That's the place I'd been prayer walking for seven years at that time. I mean, somebody in California to know about it. And I said, began weeping. And he said, you have eyes for the nations of the earth. And he said, in that place where your feet stands, it's the crossroad for revival to the nations. You know what he went on to say? And I didn't even hear it the day he spoke it to me. I had to go back to a recording of it. He looked at me and he said, as you see revival and awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it will be a catalyst for the student volunteer missions movement you've seen in your spirit. He spoke this word to me. Then two years later, Lou Engel asked me to start the House of Prayer here in Cambridge. I said no to him three times. Nope, I'm, I'm in Bradford. I'm praying over an abandoned college campus. <laughs> you know, I'm doing the whole nope, that's not happening. Long story short, I told Lou, I said, I'll do a three-day water fast. If God speaks to me, I'll do the House of Prayer in Cambridge. 
If he doesn't speak to me, can't do it. Sorry, find somebody else. <laughs> Went on my three-day water fast. You know what the only thing God said to me? The only thing he said to me, go back to the word I gave you in Reading. I thought, I like that word. That word's all about Bradford College and the Student Volunteer Missions Movement. I love that word. I went back to the word like he instructed me. and It was the first time that I heard. Because I, I guess I couldn't hear it before just because it didn't mean anything to me. It was the first time I heard, as you see revival and awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it will be a catalyst for the student volunteer missions movement that you've seen in your spirit. And it was at that time I called up Lou and I said, I really don't understand this Boston-Cambridge thing, and I really don't have a heart for Harvard or MIT. <laughs> but clearly, God has something. And so I'm going to respond, and I'm going to obey, and I'm going to establish this house of prayer. That was in 2006. The only reason I'm giving you this context is when we started the house of prayer, the campus was still empty that we'd prayed over all of those years. And I kept thinking, what are you going to do with that? God gave me a dream. And in the dream, he told me that with every new group of interns that came into the house of prayer, I should bring them to the college campus and I should give them the history of the student volunteer missions movement, the history of New England and God's intended purpose and what all of this is unto. And so in my dream, I brought the first group of students there. And when I got there, it was opening day for a Christian college. And all of the students were like, oh, I thought you said it was abandoned. And there's a Christian college here. And I said, yes, God is entrusting it to them to preserve it until the fullness of time for his purposes in New England. And it was when I was here at the house of prayer and I had established it. Long story short, the school was being auctioned off. And in the midst of it being auctioned off, one individual person um, some donor, multimillionaire, purchased the campus and gifted it to a Christian college. So what I've watched over these past 15, 20 years is that different words that God has spoken, and I say this twofold. I want to say to you, first and foremost, I have seen already incremental fulfillments of certain things that God has spoken. So guess what? It's an indication that the rest of it will be fulfilled. It's a sign and a witness that, you know, God, would you confirm and God gives me a word about the, you know, it being entrusted to a Christian college. Incrementally, I'm watching these things be fulfilled and it's giving me boldness and confidence to know that word, as you see revival and awakening on the college campuses of Boston, number one, that will be fulfilled. Number two, it will be a catalyst for the next student volunteer missions movement. Do you want to know what's extraordinary? Our generation is going to see missions and church planting done extremely diff differently. Because guess what it is? It's going to be people going back to their home of origin. And not, when they go back to their home of origin, they are the ones planting. Do you know what's extraordinary? That man also gave me a word. The same man, he, sa he said, college students think that they're coming to Boston for a degree. And then he laughed. And he said, they're not coming for a degree. They're coming for the fire of God, that there's an intended purpose here in Boston and Cambridge of something that God wants to birth. And you know what's extraordinary? It was Derek Prince. If you don't know who he is, you should look him up. Extraordinary prophet. He, it was when he was still a resident of England, he saw a vision of the, the U.S. Uh, map. And when he saw the vision of the U.S. map, he literally saw out of Boston a fire that erupted and it encompassed the entire globe in fire. 
And you know what's profound? I mean, for some of you, you might be like, these sound like really crazy things. They're crazy things. But when you think about like Jonathan Edwards has a word and he has something in his spirit that he's speaking about and he's prophesying and that's happening in one generation. And then you have somebody else that's saying almost the exact same thing kind of in different terms, but it's the same understanding of God doing something sovereignly and by his spirit. So this is what I want to say to you this morning, Hilltop. This is what we were founded for. We weren't founded to be a social club. We weren't founded to fill up your social calendar. We were founded to raise up ministers of the gospel that would preach the word without compromise and would spread the fire of the Holy Spirit around the globe. So I don't know what you're here for today. But I I can let you know something. I know what me and my husband, I know what the Eiflers, I know what our leadership team, I know what we're here for. And I know what we're building toward. And I know that we're just at the beginning of the beginning. But you know what I want to do? I want to give you this word out of 1 Timothy 1.18. It says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. So basically Paul's saying there's prophecies that were made concerning you and concerning the work that you would do. So he's basically saying you've been entrusted with these prophetic words. And it says that, that by them you may wage a good warfare, having faith and good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck. I'm going to be very brief. I promise you I will get this done in 15 minutes. I will. Um, But this is what I want to say to you this morning. Paul was instructing Timothy and he was saying these words were entrusted to you that you might wage a good warfare. I want to tell you something here today, church. I know this is not popular and I know it doesn't make us all feel good, but we are all in a warfare. We're in one individually and most of us are sleeping while the enemy is laying siege to us. And then we're also in one corporately, because guess what? The Great Commission will never be accomplished without a wartime mentality. Because it does not happen accidentally. See, wartime mentality, none of us really understand it, do we? Because we live in such times of peace. I'm going to tell you something. We as a church in the West, we live in a vacation time mentality. I'm looking for things to be the easiest they can possibly be. I don't want anybody to rub me the wrong way. I don't want it to cost me anything, require anything, and I certainly don't want to sacrifice for it. So unless it comes to me on my terms and my way and according to my preferences, I walk. Because we've sown such an independent mindset that somehow we don't need one another. But you know what's extraordinary? When you look up wartime mentality, (laughs) I looked it up because I thought, oh, that sounds aggressive. (laughs) Like, why did I hear that in my spirit? Wartime mentality. There's actually somebody, his name is Ralph D. Winter, and he's the founder of the U.S. Center for World Missions. You guys familiar with him out of Pasadena, California? He actually wrote an article called Wartime Mentality, and it's all about seeing the Great Commission fulfilled in our generation. And do you know what he says about this? Number one, he gives an example of what wartime mentality is. And he says that there's an 8,000 member, it's 8,000 members of the Friends Missionary Prayer Band in South India. So in South India, there's this group, it's almost like a denomination of 8,000 members, and they're the um, Friends of Missionary Prayer Band. 
And out of that group, they support, get this, an 8,000 member congregation, they support 80 full-time missionaries in North India. That means they fully fund 80, yes, praise God is right. You know what he went on to say in a comparison? He said, if my denomination, with its unbelievably greater wealth per person, were to do that, we would not be sending 500 missionaries, but the comparison for us would be funding 26,000 missionaries if we were doing it comparatively. I, I give you this example because that church in India understands a wartime mentality. He goes on to say, and he basically highlights these points, that the fulfillment of the Great Commission will, will, will not be possible under our present mindset or our posture, and it will not be possible. So this is these the conditions that he says that the great, fulfillment of the Great Commission will not be possible so long as the Great Commission is thought impossible to fulfill. So like we're already living as if it's impossible. So long as we think that the problems of the world are hopeless or that conversely, they can be solved merely in politics and technology. You know, most of us will say we don't think that can solve it, but we live our lives as if politics and technology are going to be the solution to our societal problems. And they're not. They're only adding to the problem. So long as our home problems loom larger to us than anybody else's. So long as modern believers, like the ancient Hebrews, think that God's sole concern is the blessing of our nation. So long as well-paid evangelicals consider their money as a gift from God to spend however they wish on themselves, rather than the responsibility from God to help others in spiritual and economic need. So long as we do not understand that he, that he who would seek to save his life will surely lose it. He goes on to talk about this self-preservation society that we've created instead of a wartime uh, mentality within the church. And he goes on to say, in our save yourself society, if there ever, one, if there ever was one, but does it really work? Underdeveloped societies suffer from one set of diseases. They have one set of diseases, which is like tuberculosis and malnutrition and pneumonia and parasites and typhoid. He goes on with the list of underdeveloped societies. But he says, an affluent North America has, a, has virtually invented a whole new set of diseases. We've invented obesity and heart de- disease and strokes and lung cancer and venereal di- diseases. We've invented liver diseases and we're more than ever plagued with the societal diseases of drug addiction, alcoholism, divorce, child abuse, suicide, murder, take your choice. Our divorce courts and prisons and psychiatric offices and mental institutions are flooded in our save-yourself society. Because that is what a save-yourself society produces. Because we don't understand what it means to spend our life for the gospel. 
So I read to you this verse in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19, and actually when he's, when he's saying that you would wage a good warfare, that word warfare is exactly the same word as in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4. And this is what 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4 says. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience with your, when your obedience is fulfilled. There's one more passage of scripture that I want to read to you out of Ephesians 6, 10, uh, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of this, this dark age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shot your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking up the shield of faith of which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God he finishes here verse 18 praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all of the saints. This is what I want to say to you this morning, friends, is we find the language in the word of God of warfare as it's almost easily understood, that it, it kind of comes with the territory, that you're not living according to this world or according to its systems, so therefore there's going to be an amount of resistance and difficulty and challenge that comes with it. And I want to give it to you this way. I mean, I'm not like an athlete by any stretch of the imaginations, but I've been to a gym. And I'm not an athlete, but I definitely will go for a walk. And I definitely have seasons where I'm like, i got to probably work on that extra 10 pounds that I gained. I get it. But this is what I want to say to you. If you are looking to get yourself in shape, let's just use me as an example. If you decide to ask me, Bethany, how's that uh, little exercise program going? And I say to you, I went out for a walk, and then I started getting kind of hot. I felt a little warm. That was uncomfortable. And then my leg just felt a little sore, so I went home. Guess what that lets you know? I did not have a mentality going into it of understanding the challenges that I would face. That in order for me to become physically fit, I was going to have to press past barriers of discomfort. That I was going to have to, have to know what it is to press a little bit in the midst of challenge and difficulty. That guess what? It would not come easily. And somehow we've been bought a lie that this should come easily to you. It should all be just be handed to you. That instead of you actually pressing in in the place of prayer, and instead of you taking the posture, which is very common in the word of God, that if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. We have received this passive language of I'm going to sit back very passively. And if God cares, he can break in. Guess what? No one has ever promised that to you, friend. It's phenomenal, extraordinary when he decides to do that. But I'm going to tell you the language that we find here, we find it's a warfare mentality. That's exactly what we find. 
You want to know something? When my son was four years old and very, very sick with Lyme's disease, I went to his doctor. Hardest thing. I actually went through four doctors. I'll give you this. First one put him on medication for 15 days. I thought, great, quick fix. 15 days, my kid's better. I'd look at the doctor and say, this is all we have to do, 15 days, my kid's better? Yep, 15 days, your kid's better, cool. Easy, I can do this. He didn't get better. Next doctor, 30 days, this is the prescription, this is what we're doing, 30 days, then he's better. I'm like, okay, easy, you're telling me after 30 days my kid's gonna be better? 30 days, okay, I can do that. Went to the next doctor, when he still wasn't better. 60 days, he's at 60 days, he was underdosed, he didn't have enough, he needs to be on longer, all the reasons, okay, 60 days, this is still so doable, I want it within reach, and I want it fast, I want relief, I want to see relief soon, guess what, my son still wasn't better, after a year of trying to get quick fixes from doctors that would just put a band-aid on it, guess what happened, I went to his last doctor, and he looked at Daryl and I, and I sobbed in his office. Yes, I can usually compose myself in those situations. And he looked at me, and he said, this will be a long road. You want to know what else he said? He said, there's not one strategy. We have to come at this from all angles. He said, we're going to have to relentlessly have to go after this and after this and after this. And if you let up... He'll get sicker and we'll have to start all over. Guess what? I sobbed because it wasn't a quick fix. I sobbed because I realized, I'm going to give you the time frame, it ended up being four years of treatment. That's a long time, friends. I sobbed, and you know what my husband said to me? He said, you need to have a mentality change. A mentality change. You're like in despair. He wasn't mean. He was just confronting me. He's like, <laughs> You're in despair because it's not going to come quickly. Guess what? Hope is in sight. Get a mindset for the long term of this. Get a mindset that it won't be easy, but there is hope in the midst of it. And that is ultimately what all of us need is a mindset change that it may not come easily. It may not come overnight. It may not be as expedient as you would like it, but guess what? God has given you a word and a promise. God has spoken to your heart and you need to shift your mentality. That's what you need to do. I'm going to tell you friends, this last passage I'm going to read to you is Ephesians 5, 16 through 17. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'm going to tell you guys something. There was someone that was in my life, and this was years ago. And I had a dream one time because it was just kind of a continual cycle and I wasn't seeing change. You know what happened was I had this dream and the person was laying on their bed and they were sound asleep. And while they were sound asleep, I literally saw a demonic spirit. The person didn't even wake up. Saw the demonic spirit fishing into their pocket to get out their keys. They had keys in their pocket. And this demon was literally fishing in their pocket to get their keys. And I'm seeing this demon trying to steal. You know, you know what keys represent? It's authority for your life. It's, it's the door of influence and authority for your life. It's ultimately the open door. for. So I'm in the dream yelling at the person going, wake up! Like that they're not even understanding that the enemy is ravaging them. They're sleeping through it. 
There's two things I want to say to you, Hilltop. That there's an individual level where you need to wake up and you need to understand the war that you are in. You need to stop rolling over and going to sleep and allowing the enemy to rob you. Time for you to rise up and wake up and be aware that to pray is warfare. To serve is warfare. To show up is warfare. To confess is warfare. Do you want to know something? Some of you are like, I don't like going to the prayer room. I'll just pray at home. You don't like going to the prayer room because it's warfare. It's hard. It's hard to get there. It's hard to stay there. Hard to stay focused. Hard to move your mouth. Hard to move your heart. But there's a second side to this, friend. As a corporate church, we need to, we need to come into a place of a wartime mentality to see the great commission fulfilled in our generation. And I'm here to tell you that the great commission not being fulfilled is not on God. It's on us. And it comes down to being a generation and being a people that see beyond ourselves and our vacation mentality. Gorging our lives with food and with rest and with leisure and seeing all the sights. Guess what? We didn't plant a church in Cambridge so you could have an awesome place to go eat lunch afterwards because there's so many choices. Planted a church in Cambridge because it's strategic for the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to close out with a time of corporate prayer here. Did you have something you wanted to add? Okay, we're going to close up with a time of corporate prayer. I'm going to pray over us, but if there's anybody here that wants personal ministry, if there's anything that from the time of worship, from the preaching of the word, that God stirred in your heart and you want to pray the prayer of agreement with someone, we do not want you to leave this place without prayer. But we're going to go ahead and close all of us corporately, and then you're free to come and receive prayer individually if you desire. God, we just thank you. That your word says that you desire that none should perish. That oftentimes, Father, we're so distracted, Lord, by our own lives and our own needs. And even more than our own needs, our own wants of what we want. Lord, that we've completely lost sight, Lord, of the, the bigger picture. And God, we ask, Father, as a community of people, Lord, that even as it says in Ephesians, Lord, that we would awake out of sleep and awake out of slumber. God, I ask, Lord, that every place, Lord, that we ourselves, Lord, are just sleeping while there's places where the enemy is ravaging our lives and robbing and killing and destroying and even bringing us into places of lethargy and despair and depression, God, I ask, Lord, that we as a community of people would awake out of that sleep and that slumber. And Lord, we understand, Lord, that even that posture of awaking, Lord, that it requires movement. It requires action. It requires obedience. And Lord, we recognize, Lord, that even this language of warfare and as the Apostle Paul exhorted us to persevere, God, we confess to you, Father, that in our... um, our society of making comfort such an idol, Lord, that we oftentimes despise that kind of language and that kind of posture. But God, I ask, Lord, that you would deliver us, God, as a community of people. 
Lord, we recognize, Lord, that as long as we live, Lord, in a, a vacation time mentality, Lord, that they ultimately will never experience victory and breakthrough and healing and the fulfillment of what you have promised us. So God, I ask, Lord, that we as a community, Lord, that even as your word says that those that seek to save their life will lose it, but those that seek to lose their life for my name's sake will find it. So God, we say, God, we want to lose our lives in you, that we might find true life in you. In Jesus' name.